You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. It's good to gather as the church this morning. I'm going to start in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, so if you have your Bibles or your phone or want to watch the screen, all the above, uh, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to start. I am going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into talking about getting over yourself. And I am not lost on the irony of promoting a book that I wrote called Getting Over Yourself. Uh, I'm self-aware enough to understand and see that. And the reality is uh, the book was written to help us understand just a really huge uh, discipleship need that I believe. Uh, exists right now in the church, really a crisis uh, that I think is coming our way, and uh, we got to talk about it. So I'm going to pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, we are grateful for your word that you've given it to us. We have the scriptures. I mean, what else could we need from the words of our God? Like, what a privilege that everything your word tells us that we need for godliness and to follow Christ and to understand this world you've given us through the scriptures. So I ask that we will settle in that, that we will find joy and rest in the reality that we have the words of our God and that he has spoken. So we ask to be faithful with that truth. I also ask to be with all the churches in our city as they gather today, as we know we're not the only ones doing this, that every pulpit across this town will preach the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we'll see people in our city believe the good news and enter into your family. We ask to keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I believe that right now the biggest hindrance towards following Jesus fully as the scriptures have called us to, the biggest hindrance, I don't think it's secularism. I don't think it's whatever political cause you believe is the biggest threat. I don't believe it's a sexual revolution. I don't believe it's doubt. I believe the biggest hindrance towards following Jesus on a daily basis is me. It's myself. And it's also you. It is yourself. That's the biggest hindrance that stands in the way of us actually being disciples of Jesus Christ. But here's what makes it really complicated. The, I guess we could say, glorification of self Self-expression, all the things that we see happening are now even being touted with a Christian message. And we have to know what's going on and what the scriptures say concerning that. Colossians chapter three. So if you have been raised with Christ, and every Christian has been raised with Jesus Christ, we're told in the scriptures that we were dead and we've been brought back to life. Like we weren't someone that was out in the water begging for a life preserver. We actually, the scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter two, we were dead in our sins and we've been raised with Christ. It's an awesome, uh, just really metaphor of Christ's resurrection. When we see baptism, that's a visible expression of someone saying, I've been raised with Christ. I've, been, I've died and I've been raised with Christ. So he says, because of that, seek the things above. Like that's the response. So I've been raised with Christ. I wanna seek the things that are above. Why? Because that's where he is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So you've been raised with Christ, now our focus should shift. Our eyes should be in a different direction. Our minds should be in a different direction on the things of God rather than the things of this world. But be not mistaken, things like your, your marriage, your friendships, your parenting, things like your work, All those things actually are of God. So it's not saying don't worry about those things. God's called us to provide for our families in the scriptures. 
We're called to give, uh, you know, to work as unto the Lord, to give glory to God through our employment, through the things that we do. So it's easy to think when you say to somebody, set your mind on things above, that you're suggesting they shouldn't care about the things of this world. What I'm suggesting is those things I just mentioned are not the things of this world. They're the things of God that he has called us to do for his glory and for his mission. The issue is when all of a sudden we get driven by the things of this world that are not the things that God has prescribed for his people to be a part of. It says, for you die, that's what happened when you come to faith, your old self is gone, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And now we're in Christ. The doctrine is the union with Christ. It's a really precious Christian doctrine, meaning that we are now in Christ, one with him. She says, when Christ, who is your life, which is an assumption there, and I want to go, wow, I... That's a life goal, when Christ who is your life. I'm not sure I can claim that personally, uh, but that could be a goal for all of us. When Christ who is your life appears, and you'll also appear with him in glory, as in everything you've actually wanted will now be true. Life with God and away from the pain of this world forever. So what's the biggest hindrance to Colossians chapter three being a reality in our lives? I believe it's the gospel of self-fulfillment otherwise known as expressive individualism. The gospel of self-fulfillment, also known as expressive individualism, where you need to discover and express what they would call your unique sense of self. And the narrative arc of your life is really finding your own personal route to happiness by following your heart and ultimately expressing who you really are. And it becomes really the mission, you gotta fight the haters, they'll say. Like whoever would oppose you, your, if that's your society or even your family or your past or your present, your marriage, your church, whatever's in the way of me actually finding that ultimate sense of self, it's got to go. And I have to fight against it. That's the message of this world. All of us really, I'm going to assume this, are looking for the stamp of approval that says we're okay. That we have what it takes that we're good enough, that we have it all figured out. Now that's the message of this world, but here's why I wrote this book and why we gotta talk about this. It's easy to dismiss it as that's what the world thinks, it's all about you, your self-discovery, knock out of the way what's in the way of you not following your heart, reaching your dreams, whatever it might be. What's happening, it's new, it's the last few decades, and in church history that's new, is that's now been sprinkled with Christian language and out-of-context Bible verses and churches that almost revolve around this kind of messaging, which then makes people feel it's okay to do all these things and to pursue all these things rather than to set your mind on Christ because you've been risen with him, to set your heart and mind on the things of this world, but basically to do it with Christian language so you feel better about it and you might see some life change happen so therefore you validate it as legitimate and okay. And it's everywhere right now. I call it the Instagramification of the faith. We are told that God wants us to go on a journey to discover our true essence, which we then offer up as a gift from God to the rest of the world. This gospel basically says that you are great. You just need to dig deep inside yourself and find that personal potential that God wants to unlock, that destiny, and God is more or less a resource to help you get there. 
Like he's the battle cry. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's, he's the battle cry to help you get there. I call it the new prosperity gospel. Now the old prosperity gospel is easy to detect. We can even in the fleshly moments kind of laugh about it. If I flip channels and see it on, if I need a little entertainment in my life, I'll give it like five minutes just so I can kind of laugh through it. You know, somebody on stage telling you if you call this number at the bottom of the screen, God's gonna give you a blessing and drop a Bentley in your front yard and make your diseases go away, right? But it, you know, people are drawn to it, actually millions, sadly, around the world. But it's easy just to kind of dismiss it, make, declare it to be fringe, just kind of make fun of it. But this new prosperity gospel, it's really slick and it's really savvy and it's really cool, and it's done really well, and it's really attractive, and it's branded geniusly. I mean, this is the good stuff in the world's perspective. So it's easy to hear the same exact message of the old prosperity gospel, but be duped by it because it's packaged so well. Paul wrote this to the Philippian church, verse 15, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. So if I say, who here wants to be mature in Christ? Mature in their faith. I would hope that a decent amount of people who claim to be Christians would go, yeah, I want to be mature in our faith, my faith. I want to grow in my faith. So he says, okay, so let all of you who are mature think this way. And the rational question is, which way? How should we think? So we're going to work backwards for a minute through Philippians 3 to see how God, through the writing of the Apostle Paul, wants us to think. So the Apostle Paul just listed all of his accomplishments, things that he believed used to make him righteous, that used to make him good, that used to make him legit in his standing with God. And then he realized when he actually met Jesus and heard the gospel, he said, everything that was a gain to me, all the things I accumulated, I consider to be a loss. Why? Because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view, in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's like, knowing Jesus, everything else. Mature people, the scale should be going like this, he's saying. He says, because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. And I've always envisioned, shows my lack of maturity, that the people hearing this letter, that Paul's calling that a maturity and then mentions poop in the same letter, that you know like all the youth group boys just lost it uh, during that time. He says, why have I considered them as dung so I may gain Christ? So I can't be both. It can't be my accomplishments and the name of Jesus. There's gonna be some friction. There's gonna be some tension there because I wanna be found in him. Like that's where I wanna camp. That's where I want my identity. I wanna be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, from my obedience, from my good deeds, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, he gives it to us. He gifts it to us. He, we're told, imputes it to us from God based on faith. So he lays out some gospel understanding for us here that righteousness is not obtained by keeping the rules or keeping the law. We actually depend on Jesus' righteousness. He died a death that we deserve for our failure to keep the law. As a result of that, as Colossians says, we're risen with Christ. We are now with him. So he makes that case first, then he switches gears a little. He says now in verse 10, so now here's what I'm all about. Like here's my purpose now, my goal is to know him. That's what it's about now. I mean, how often in these circles and in this messaging does it seem like that God's existence is for you to kind of unlock your unmet potential and release it for all the world to see? 
that that should be your goal. And we'll use language like God-sized dreams and those type of things. And he goes, no, no, my goal now, as in I've accomplished so much, he says, my goal is to know him. And how does that happen? Through the power of his resurrection? As in the new life I've been given to live by God's grace, I've been raised with Christ, victorious over all these things, but also in the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death, that it's both. To know Jesus is Jesus in his resurrection and Jesus in his death. Assuming I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. If my goal is to know Jesus, then I'm gonna know him in power and I'm gonna know him in pain. And both of those things, the new prosperity gospel has no category for suffering. They don't know how to address it. Instead, they'll just make it more about you again. They'll say, oh, well, God's just giving you this setback in your life to turn it into a comeback. It's like, what are we talking about here? Like, what, 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 do you, what do you mean by that? Now, we're told in the scriptures that God has put the struggles in your life to point you to Christ, to make you more like Jesus. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. James 1 says that through trials come perseverance. I'm not, wasting, I'm not wishing trials on anyone, but I'm not gonna make you a false promise that they don't exist in the scriptures. That the point of them is to set you up to go slay it on Monday. The heading of my Bible, it's just man-made words here, but the heading of my Bible, this next section says, reaching forward to God's goal. I read that and said, wow, I want, to be, I want to be my life. I want God's goal to be my goal. Because not that I've already reached the goal, or I'm already perfect, and I'm like, thank God. The Apostle Paul still has not arrived Right, I'm still prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, as we sang earlier, right? Like, like none, I, I do not have this stuff mastered. You read that and you go, whew, kind of deep breath. Paul doesn't either. He says, I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, he goes, but I make every effort. I'm striving here to take hold of it. Why? Because I've been taken a hold of by Christ Jesus. Jesus has a hold of me now. I'm in Christ. I've been raised with Christ. And because of that now, I strive for these things. He goes, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. Work in progress. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind my old life, the values, the beliefs of that life, I'm reaching forward to what is ahead. And that verse oftentimes is used motivationally, as in like to win a game or to accomplish a goal. And Paul's using athletic language here, but here's the point of it. So that I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying that I am passionately going after my goals. And you know what my goal is, he's saying? Jesus. It's life with God. And then in verse 15, Paul says, if you're mature, think like this. Like this is what maturity in Christ looks like. And that we're all to pursue this. And there's no way to escape the fact that we're always conformed to what we focus on. What we lock in is what we're gonna be the most like. What we emphasize is gonna be what we put our efforts towards. And living with a focus that is just on ourselves, it keeps us actually from being conformed more and more to the image of Christ and actually experiencing the full life that he offers. And I put it like this, if you wanna discover yourself, you discover yourself in Christ. That's where self-discovery happens. 
And then you realize that in him is everything you actually have been looking for, and that sustains to knowing him in his resurrection and in his sufferings. Because you belong to him and he won't let you go, we're told. For you died, verse three, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now we're not told to loathe ourselves. That's not the answer. We're told to forget ourselves. Because we do that and we remember more of Jesus. See, the world's wisdom says, look within. Follow your heart like you have what it takes. The good news of the gospel tells us to look without. To look away from yourself. So here's our world now, and it's important to know that the Apostle Paul, in his letters, spent a lot of time naming names because he cared so much for the church that he would say, hey, be careful of this person here because of what they're teaching. Hey, you need to avoid, you need to, or sometimes it's, hey, put this guy in their place, sometimes it's get rid of them because they're leading the church astray. He wasn't judgmental, he didn't misrepresent them, He would say, here's their name, here's what they're teaching, you need to be aware of this. So as we're trying to follow Jesus in a world that is the Instagramification of the faith, it's all about a better you and a better you, and you only live once and live your best life and do whatever makes you happy and all these kind of things, we we gotta understand who's saying that and where it goes and how we've gotten here. Elizabeth Gilbert, she traveled the world to find happiness and she documented her journey of self-discovery in the very widely read and sold book, Eat, Pray, Love. It also became a very successful movie. I mean, those words are there, pray, love. My favorite word, eat, is also included. And since her kind of moment of self-discovery on her journey, you know what's happened since then? The one who's praying and loving and eating? She divorced her husband and has fallen in love with a woman. But she's discovered her true self. So the world says, that's great. I'm so happy for you. Glennon Doyle, very popular speaker at a lot of Christian conferences, very popular blogger, massive in the women's world, so she's kind of like in a pop Christian, women of faith kind of world. A few years ago, she announced her own divorce and announced that she has a new partner, referring to her as my person, which is how the world today on Instagram refers to their spouse, as soccer player Abby Wambach. And her rationale was that I know my Jesus. That was her rationale. I know my Jesus and he is perfectly fine with this. Trevin Wax, a friend of mine, wrote that the idea that Jesus would bless the dissolving of marriage vows still shocks Christians in most parts of the world, but not in the United States, where Jesus is appealed to as a coach who is helping you find your way forward to becoming a better you. And whatever's in the way, they'll say things like, God wants you to be happy, therefore, you gotta release those things, flee from those things, get rid of those things, and now claim your personal destiny for yourself. Notice the God language, the Jesus language, the pray language, so it makes the average hearer or reader think it's all okay because those things are being concluded. Doyle claims one should be so comfortable, and I'm accurately representing, not out of context, that's, I, I, that's just quoting somebody, 
Doyle claims one should be so comfortable in your own being, your own skin, your own knowing, that you become more interested in your own joy and freedom and integrity than in what others think about you. Again, when you hear that, you go, yeah. Let's not be consumed with what others think about us. Let's be about our own journey, our own story, our own freedom, following our hearts. Why does it matter what other people think? And I read that and I go, but what about what God thinks? Why aren't we asking that question? Because God's not going to ask you about haters. He's going to ask you about you. And either you're going to be found in a righteousness of his or in yourself. So what's happened is we never talk, we make sure we do here. I'd be run out of town tomorrow, and rightfully so, by our elders. But here we're going to talk. We're going to talk about realities of the gospel. God's wrath, God's judgment of sin, God's mercy, God's compassion, God's forgiveness. When there's no category for God's judgment, then you just do you. And God's there going, good job. Follow your heart. But maybe that God is a lowercase g God that we've invented that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. Are we open to going there and unafraid to claim this is not the same thing as the Jesus of the scriptures? It's like happiness is our only duty today. That self-betrayal is like the only sin that exists. Failing to reach one's potential, whatever that even means, or live an ordinary life is the real sin. Wax says this, it's not simply that the lines of morality have been blurred in modern times, making truth relative. It's that now even religious belief has been waned. So what's happened is you have worldly thinking and Christian, basically, I guess you could say values, respect, admiration, affiliation, and we're blending the two together and calling it Christianity where we suggest through this that the things we longed for and lusted after before we came to know Christ, that it's okay to still lust for those same things after. Platform, identity in what you do or who you are attracted towards, notoriety, ease, fulfillment at all times through the things of this world. So, the good life has been radically redefined according to the benefit of the individual while the old life or how Christianity is viewed in most of the world, I should say the good life of Christ, things such as God's glory being your concern, the local church, your family's well-being has now been displaced and the result is we're all on the throne now. The philosopher John Stuart Mill in 1859, a long time ago, on liberty, he wrote this in an essay. Pagan self-assertion is better than Christian self-denial. Let's keep that up there for a minute. Now that makes sense from the world, that pagan self-assertion, it's a lot better than the Christian message of not me but Jesus. Just a whole lot more appealing to the world. But here's what's happened now. This is in 1859. So now, we, just, we can take the word pagan off the screen and substitute it with the word Christian, where Christian self-assertion is better than Christian self-denial. Would any Christian ever admit that? Of course not. 
but functionally that's what is happening. And what's the secular mantra of our day? You see it everywhere. Do more of what makes you happy. But that's the mantra. Do more of what makes you happy and anything that gets in the way of that needs to be removed. It's fine for the world to think that, but now Christians even agree with that far too often because they're being influenced and discipled by Instagram and by these preachers who are coming out and bringing this message that they're completely confused and wandering down paths that they even, I believe, sincerely have no idea they're on. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I'm the gate, John chapter 10. One of my favorite passages of scripture, I'm the gate. I said, come on in. I'm the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, saved from their sins. And I love this, the benefits of our salvation. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Now think about a pasture, like visualize it in your head. That's what Jesus is doing here. Talking in an agrarian society. Think about a pasture. Doesn't it just kind of like, I don't mean like one with anthills everywhere, or like, like, like a smooth, green, like, just pasture, and it just, it's kind of a symbol of peace, isn't it? It's almost like a deep breath, just like, <sighs> nice day out, not a cloud in the sky. Makes you wanna, you know, pull over on the side of the road and go skipping across it, doesn't it? I mean, maybe that's just me, sorry, but I, I need to stop admitting these things. But it just has that kind of, <sighs> kind of feeling to it. And Jesus is saying, I'm the gate for all the things in life, all the pressures, all the things you're looking for and longing for, find it in me. Psalm 23, he makes us lie down in green pastures. That Jesus wants us to come in the gate and find all of those things in him. And it really doesn't mean that the, the difficulties don't go away. It rains sometimes in the pasture. Well, horse fly comes out sometimes in the pasture. It's almost horse fly season at the pool in Tallahassee already. Y'all pumped up for that? And he says this, the thief though, here's the opposite. A thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. The thief's anti-pasture. He goes, but I've come so they may have life and have it in abundance. This is what Jesus has for us and wants for us is an abundant life. I think when you talk about self-forgetfulness, people think you want, they want you to be Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Remember Eeyore? No, it's a abundant life and the gateway to this abundant life in the pasture is not by finding yourself but by losing yourself and going in the gate with Jesus but Christian Instagram will never point us in that direction the Bible always does makes you think of John the Baptist pop Christianity loves the word and new prosperity gospel loves the word platform really into that word platform influence those kind of words if anybody had it, he was a weird dude. But if anybody had influence in a platform at the time, it was John the Baptist. People were even confused and thinking they were getting baptized into John's name. And the guy had a following. And all of a sudden, Jesus, who John knew, comes on the scene, entering kind of public ministry for the first recorded time in the scriptures. Now, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? He didn't say, here comes our motivator. He didn't say, there comes our life coach. He didn't say, there even comes our instructor or our teacher, even though he is those things. He said, there he is, the Lamb of God. The fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that Lamb language would have connected with the Jewish audience. 
because throughout their entire lives and generations and generations, the significance of the lamb being sacrificed in their place by the high priest was their only means of life and connection with God. And now here's someone they're calling like the living, walking lamb of God who's gonna come take away the sins of the world. And what's John's response to that? He said in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. If anyone had something to lose worldly wise in that moment, it would have been John. But here he is saying, not I, but Christ in me. Now every Christian I know would say, yes, Jesus must increase. Yes, yes, yes. But here's what happens in the new prosperity gospel. We want Jesus to increase. We just want to increase with him. We're all about more of Jesus, but let's make sure there's more of me too. And I would suggest that's a whole different Jesus altogether because he will not share his glory with anyone else. God loves himself and God loves you too much to allow competing glories to happen. So just a few takeaways here. There's a hundred, that's why I wrote a book to include all that in this so you can't do in a sermon. A few takeaways, five actually, just to help us get over ourselves. And by getting over ourselves, we go into the gate, into the great pasture. Isn't that interesting how God works? Like by us getting over ourselves, it actually benefits us too. Because we actually get to have life with the one who always loves us back. First thing is this, believe Jesus is the best life. Believe that Jesus really actually is the best life. The gate, the pasture, the one who gives it to us in abundance. Like wrestle to believe that he is the best life you're looking for. That he really is the journey. He is the destination. Jesus actually really is the best life. Until you really believe that, he'll just be part of life. Not the whole life. Thankfully, Paul said, I'm not there either. He goes, I'm working towards it. It's a grace-fueled effort to say, not the things of this world, but Jesus. He actually is the best life. Like, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Like, is he the one that brings us into the pasture, or do we need a lot of other different pastures? There's not more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. I don't have to go around God rather than to God for the things I'm looking for. And here's what's good news too. Believing Jesus is the best, you know what else it does? It sets you up for the rest of your life where you can put the guilt and the shame and the mistakes and the remorse you have, you can put it behind you and say, now my life's about Jesus. It used to be about me. And it hurt my parenting, hurt my marriage, hurt my, my relationships, it hurt my, you can just go on and on and on, but now it's not anymore. And you know what? When someone in your life gets to that point where they realize it, the scriptural precedent is open arms through the gate in the pasture and say, let's go. Let's go. Not making, not holding over their head, but let's go. Second thing, refuse to hold God to promises he never made. My biggest worry, I have like a lot of worries, one of my biggest worries about this new prosperity gospel, we haven't seen the results of it yet because it's still new, is it's gonna set up a generation of Christians for disappointment with God. Because they believe that it's God's will for them. They believe things like that, uh, that God, you know, and, and that God's ambition is their personal ambition. 
It's their dreams being fulfilled. It is their potential being unlocked. And usually that just means notoriety, a lot of money, fame, ease. But that's what God wants for you, is what people believe. You know, the Bible never actually says that. I'll take out of context Bible verses and put it on there and make us feel like God's behind it. I'm just really worried. Like from the old prosperity gospel, you'll see people who now are nowhere to be found in the faith anymore because their church told them that it was God's will that their mother will be cured from cancer. They just believed more and had faith more and they tried. And it's like, what does that even mean? Do you close your eyes real tight and go, faith? I mean, what what does that even mean? And they tried all those things, did everything the pastor in the book said. Mom still died of cancer. And they go, where's God? Where's God? Now, does God cure cancer a lot? Heck yeah, he does. Is God the great healer? Absolutely he is. But he never promises us that it's going to happen this side of heaven. The promise he does make is that one day all will be made new. There's a new life and a new resurrection. Please don't hold God to promises he's never made. You hear people say things like, I just know that God has one person picked out for me to marry. He doesn't tell us that. But there's one person out there for everybody. We're not promised that. We're not promised a spouse. We're not promised kids. We're not promised that job. We're not promised that city. We're not. We're not promised that college or that intellect. Or We're not. You know what we're promised? God life with him. Is it okay to still pray for that stuff? Sure it is. And can God grant that stuff? Absolutely he can, but he hasn't promised it to us. He promises that Jesus is the gate that we can come in and we can be with him in the pasture. Third thing, remember what you signed up for. It's not the best grammar in the world, but that's just what came to my mind. Remember what you signed up for. When you came to follow Jesus, he didn't sign up for a life coach. You didn't sign up to just make life better. You're following the one who said, the same one who said that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life, is the same, God who, the same one who said, if you want to be my disciple and follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. As in die to yourself. I'm not sure exactly who said it because it's not an original thought with me. I want to give credit where credit is due, but I'm not sure who first said it that every Christian should attend a funeral every morning, and that funeral is your own, where you die to yourself, since you're one who's been raised with Christ. Paul wrote, I die daily. Remember what you signed up for in following Jesus. It's not supposed to be easy. But the good news, he also tells us his yoke is easy and his burden's light, which means in him, again, is the pasture. But the cost is great. Second Corinthians 5.15 says that he died so that those who live no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again. Number four, you were ordinary and that's okay. You are ordinary and that is all right. That's not a cuss word, the word ordinary. Basic is not the B word. Mundane is not anti-Christian. People say things like, you should never get comfortable, you should never get comfortable. I say that's kind of anti-pasture thinking. 
that we should be comfortable in Christ. I mean, yeah, if you're trying to, you know, train for a marathon, I wouldn't suggest trying to get comfortable. You need to follow the plan. But in Christ, we should be comfortable. In him, with him. I uh, spoke a couple years ago, I, I told this story a while back, but if you weren't here, I'll just kind of retell it, that I spoke at a, a, a large high school, Christian high school graduation, large for a Christian school in Jacksonville. And evangelical school, Bible-believing, like you know, Bible in class, also, so I knew who I was talking to, and I said, okay, it's high school graduation. And I said, what do they need to hear? I said, right now they're being told over and over again that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and that you know, they have unlimited potential. They can accomplish anything they want to. They just put their mind towards it. And, and, and as I think about it, I was just like, oh, that's such a lie. <laughs> thinking in my head. So I go before this Christian school. And again, it's, you know, the whole thing. Graduation, caps and gowns, the whole deal. And I told them, I said, hey, guys, this is going to sound bad to your mom at first. But it's actually really good news for you. And bad to mom because she thinks all these amazing things are going to happen to you and all that kind of stuff. You've got to love your mom. I'm like, if I preach really bad, my mom still liked it. Don't forget that. Good job. Amazing sermon. Thanks, mom. So you need that. So I went up there and I said, here's the deal. I said, one, congratulations. I said, congratulations on doing the bare minimum required of you by law. No, I didn't say that. I'm kidding. No, I said, I said, I didn't say that. I said, congratulations. And I said, here's the deal, and I do think it's a great milestone and a great accomplishment, just for the record, I was joking, but I said, you're gonna be told this week that you have unlimited potential. That God knows the plans he has for you. Jeremiah 29, 11, which is actually about how to exist in exile in Babylon, but carry on. <laughs> that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, which actually is about how to find contentment, but carry on. I said, and, and I'm here to tell you that you actually have very limited potential. That you actually can't do whatever it is you set your mind to. I said, but you know what? That's actually really good news. Because while you might be ordinary, you serve an extraordinary God who has a massive mission that he wants you to be a part of. So there's a really good chance that you're gonna grow up and work a basic job and work it till you're able to qualify for your pension you're going to live about 10 miles from your parents, if that. And you're going to go to their house for lunch like four days a week. And then your kids are going to do the same old thing. There's a Christian song. We were made for so much more than ordinary lives. And I'm like, what, what, wait, wait, what if we were made for ordinary lives? And what if God receives glory in that? What if God's will for us is to be great friends and great husbands and great employees and bosses and serious missionaries and committed to a local church and furthering his mission, like the ordinary things of the Christian life. They might not be, have the best filter on them or the best hashtag, but we're the first generation of Christians, the first to completely link, completely link how we end up popularity-wise with what it means to be a Christian. To where being a Christian means that I have accomplished all these things for God. I'm not saying that other Christians and other generations haven't worried about it yet, but the messaging has never been there constantly. Constantly. 
And I think here's how we resist it. The last one, number five. God's dream for you is his mission. That's the God-sized dream. That's what it is. So if it's an internship in New York City or a stay-at-home mom or teaching public school or being a nurse on a hospital floor or being a high-end attorney or a lobbyist or an elected official or someone who just wakes up every day and goes to work that you're qualified for because of the degree you got just to provide for your family and when that day for retirement comes, boom, you're gone. All of us, no matter where he has us, we're all part of God's mission. That's why when it comes to employment, we refer to that, we, we call it being called, not employed. And by that we mean that, not that every job you work is gonna be ideal and your passion and your dream and all of these things. Rather, wherever God has us, and, and work is where most of us spend the majority of our time, that's significant. Wherever he has us, we're called there. Not to have all your dreams fulfilled by what office you walk into and what suite you have access to. But we're called there to be a part of God's glory and his mission to make his name, not ours, great throughout the whole earth. Can we believe together that the greatest blessing of God is God? That life with Jesus really is the best life? And the message of this world, you've got to get rid of these things so you can pursue your happiness is a message of lies because Jesus is the gate and he is the pasture. So things we get rid of are things that are hindering us with Jesus, which is sin, selfishness, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Those are the things we get rid of because we're not going to live our life for things that Jesus died for. Let's thank him for that and pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, I ask this book, it's insignificant to you, but pass this book that it be used just to get the scriptures in front of people and to point us away from ourselves into you. So Lord, I ask that we'll be a people who are so convinced of who you are and what you've done that we actually believe that is enough and that is what's best. So Lord, I just ask for myself personally that my best life is defined by life with you. And on days where I don't believe that, keep redirecting me to who you are and what you've done for me in Christ and how their abundance is waiting for me. And that abundance is defined by a relationship with you, not the things of this world. Thank you for Jesus who made this possible. That's his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.